Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Fleur MacDonald. Fleur MacDonald is a best-selling author of Australian rural fiction with hits such as Blue Skies and Red Dust. She's sometimes referred to as the voice of the outback and today Fleur is joining me to discuss her new novel, Starting From Now. I'm Andrew Popel and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture as featured on 2SER, and the Great Conversations podcast is a chance for you to hear more of these discussions. Zara Ellison is a reporter with the Farming Telegraph. Just finishing up a big story of a protest gone wrong, resulting in a man's death, when she gets the call from home. Her brother's cancer has progressed, and he has maybe a few months to live. Packing up her Adelaide apartment, Zara returns to Barker, a town that has always felt too small, and a life that she left as a teenager, off to boarding school with dreams of the world. Join me as we discover Fleur McDonald's Starting From Now. My name is Andrew Popel, and I am very happy to be joined on the line by Fleur MacDonald. Fleur is a best-selling author of Australian rural fiction with hits such as Blue Skies and Red Dust. You have met her on the show if you are a long-time listener. Fleur, welcome back. Thank you for, thank you for joining me. Oh, hi, Andrew. It's nice to be back with you. It is great to be talking. Um, it's hard to keep up. You've got two books coming out pretty much every year, but we're, we're well past a dozen now. And the, the latest we're going to be discussing is Starting From Now, which is sort of uh, your Christmas offering for this year. Yep, it, it sure is. So I, I, um, yeah, I write the two books a year and I just, yeah, Christmas is a great time to be able to release a book, you know, give, hopefully give the gift of reading with all of that, you know, with the Christmas books. And in starting from now, we have Zara Ellison. She's a reporter with the Farming Telegraph. She's just finishing up a big story of a protest gone wrong, resulting in a man's death. When she gets the call from home, now her brother's cancer has progressed. He has maybe a few months left. Packing up her Adelaide apartment, Zara returns to Barker, a town that has always felt a little too small for her, and a life that she left as a teenager off to boarding school with dreams of the world. That's our setup. Zara has to sort of adjust to this life and this absolute tragedy that is that is happening within her family. But I was hoping perhaps that we could actually start with a moment in the book between Zara and another character, Sophie Grod. Sophie is the, the daughter of the protester who was killed whilst sabotaging equipment as part of a protest. And And in this exchange, Sophie tells Zara that what she's interested in, why she's a protester, why she is, is doing these things, is for transparency, for helping others, people who don't know much about farming and helping them understand what goes on behind the gate. I wondered perhaps if that resonated for you as you were writing. And in your novels, many readers are getting perhaps their most intimate view of farming life. Do you feel a responsibility in the things that you portray and, and representing that to sort of a wider population? Yeah, I certainly do. Uh, I I farmed for uh, twenty plus years. Um, I only sort of got out of farming probably about five years ago, and not for any reason other than the fact that uh, I just didn't live on the farm anymore. Um, I had a divorce, so uh, I, and I still own land. I love farming, and we have a wonderful industry that um, has a lot of um, transparency 
that sometimes people actually don't realise that the transparency is there. So I love to be able to bring a world that I know very, very well into people's lounge rooms or cars or wherever they're reading so they um, can understand a little bit about what we do and why we do it. And uh, and when I brought the activists into it, I, I felt that that was a really um, important link to bring in because we just when I started writing this book, Aussie Farm Maps had just been... Uh, had just hit the internet and that was where um, people listed farmers' addresses and uh, names and telephone numbers and encouraged people to go onto people's farms and trespass. And that's, to me, that was horrifying because, you know, we our farms are our homes and, you know, we've got young children and or older children and, and it also poses a, a really huge biosecurity risk. So I just wanted people to understand why it was quite um, confronting for farmers, but I also wanted people that were farmers that perhaps read this book to understand the activist point of view as well. So I tried to do... I, I tried to show a, an unbiased view on both uh, on both sides. Now, Zara is undoubtedly your protagonist, but as I read, Zara and Sophie seem to me to be perfect foils... Both have experienced tragedy, the loss of a father at a young age. Both are committed to education and to educating the public, telling them truths that they personally believe are important. And they're, they're both committed to the welfare of animals, especially within the farming community, albeit from widely differing perspectives. Mm. What, what were you, you've touched on this a little bit, but what were you interested in in contrasting the stories of these two women and in, in a way having them cross over at different points in their narrative? So um, I guess Sophie was probably a a product of having to need somebody to to be an activist, um, and Zara uh, came from you know I needed her to have an understanding of farming background, so I needed two very very different women, um, which I hope you know I hope I've created, but I think uh, to get them together and. To, for them just to show respect for each other. So we, uh, that was my intention for both of them, that they needed to be able to show respect for each other because I feel that that's what we need to do in real life, mm-hmm. um, to show everyone can have um, differing opinions and, and both Zara and, and Sophie's opinions probably look from the surface that they are similar, but like you say, they come from very different backgrounds uh, and it's nice to be able to portray the... Um, the differences there and for them to be able to respect and each other and each other's differing opinions and not get so antsy with each other. Mm. It was a really interesting, uh, the ways that you contrasted. So Sophie as an activist, and it's, it's not revealing too much to say there's a, an issue with, with drones being flown over farms and the community and not sure where this is coming from. Um, and what that has the effect of doing from the protest perspective is, in theory, they can sort of just dump live video. So it's, it's, in theory, again, not edited. It's showing a true vision. And with Zara, she is very much interested in balanced reporting, and she actually quite often makes that distinction to people that she is there to report. She is interested in balance. She's not, a, she's not trying to journalise or sensationalise the story um, and, and mm-hmm. how we actually consume media and, and the sources that we find uh, to be reliable, to be trustworthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think sometimes we see in 
um, in the media that that um, they like to sensationalise things and perhaps not tell exactly. They tell the story from, I guess, the way that they see it, and sometimes it is sensationalised. Really balanced and, and honest reporting is a um, is a good way to be. <laughs> so yeah, I've tried to get Zara to to be like that. Now, the division between rural and metropolitan life is highlighted uh, for Zara, especially as she's asked to perhaps think about giving up her job in the bustling newsroom and return to the farm. I mean, it's a terrible situation that's happening with her brother and her mother's going to need help on the farm. We also see it in the story of Senior Constable Jack Higgins. He, I'm going to be very careful what I reveal in the story here, but he, he is a sort of honest secondment in Adelaide and he's really struggling to adjust to city life, even, you know, just a small apartment with a balcony and there's a smoker on the nearby balcony. It's also a bit of a cliche of Australian life to have this divide between the country and the city. Uh, but I wonder, do you feel like, is it something that's getting wider in our modern world? Is it becoming an insurmountable divide? Uh, I think while we've got people um, or farmers dedicated to, you know, uh, talking to other people and and like people from the city and and showing and happy to show uh, city counterparts what we do, that the the gap is still there, but it's not insurmountable. I, I think it is really wide, and we've got to do a lot to be able to close that and and get information to to um, to people that don't understand farming or haven't been involved. It's not so much they don't understand it, they just haven't been involved with it. So it's not insurmountable. It's certainly getting to that point. But we have a you know, we have some really great uh, active online farmers who talk to people and will answer questions. And I'm involved in a, a Facebook page called Outback Paparazzi, which we started for that particular reason. You know, we, we wanted to document and photograph as um, for three photographers, uh, uh, me and two other girls on there. And we started that because we wanted to show the beauty of the country, but if we wanted it to be a safe place for people to come and ask questions about farming. So there are there certainly are people out there that are trying to bridge the gap. And I guess that that's what I'm trying to do in the books as well is, like I said before, just take what I'm a life that I know very, very well into somebody else's world that perhaps they wouldn't have seen what I've seen. And because I've farmed, uh, I have authenticity with, with that. I can, I can, you know, talk about it with, um, yeah, with authenticity, I suppose. I was really interested in the fact that Zara is a reporter, which is traditionally a very uh, immersive role. These are people who are constantly thinking about stories and constantly researching. You know, the, you don't clock off if something is happening. Mm-hmm. Very similar to farm life, but again, you've got that metropolitan versus country divide. Uh, there are others in this world who, who are just, they want to clock off at five o'clock. They want to be able to turn their life off. Zara can't do that. And if she were to go back to the farm, she couldn't do that. Is it, is it a mindset? Are some people just constantly in that living, living their work kind of life? <laughs> I think that that's my life. <laughs> so, so maybe I because I've always wanted to be one of the things I really wanted to do when I was younger was be a rural reporter so I've had a great time like living Zara's life through this book uh, and I guess you know farming has has always consumed me when I was when I was farming um and writing consumes me you can't just shut off from that either because you'll find that there's a um that you know something will turn up that, that you need to write down straight away, otherwise you'll forget it. The same goes for journalism. They're always looking for stories. So I think 
and I think also that not shutting off is part of our world these days, you know, part of everybody's world. There's not, you know, with the constantness of um, mobile phones and being able to be contacted all the time, there would be very few people that do honestly shut off from the minute that they walk in the door at whatever time they finish work to when they go back to work the next morning. So I think that that's just a reflection of our society these days. How do we we reconcile that then? Because I think when you give the mobile phone example, the idea that you can be answering work emails as you fall asleep in the middle of the night, there's not going to be many people that argue that's that's probably a net bad and we need to step away from that. But when we come back to the example of farming, I mean – if something happens, it has to be dealt with. The farm relies on it. Can, yep. We can't say that's a net bad. We can't, I mean, we, we rely on farmers. How does that balance exist? Uh, the work-life balance in farming? I, I think that you would be pushed to find people that, um, that have a work-life balance in farming, so you, I, I, especially the people that own their land um, themselves. Companies have policies in place where, you know, the employees have to have their you know, they only work for six days or five and a half days or whatever. So the employees often get their time. But if you are a private landowner and I'm just thinking about my previous um, circumstance and, you know, quite a few of the family farming operations that I know, you know, even if there are staff there, you have to give them the time off. So then you have to be there to, uh, to cover when they're not there. So... I think some, I, I probably couldn't tell you any farmer that I know that has got that work life balance, you know, it, it does down pat. Se- yeah, it does. And it does seem almost untenable, especially for the people who, who subject themselves to this. And I thought Will's story actually presented this really interesting balance to the discussion of rural and metropolitan life. As he lays dying, he's still devoted to the land that he's worked on. He's entire very short life you know he's he's installed technology that allows him to farm from his sickbed but he also wonders to his sister at the things that he's missed out on by never straying far from the farm's boundaries now the isolation of the bush adequate support and infrastructure they occupy national debate and right now we even we've got a pm who seems to think that rural fireys don't mind leaving family and work for extended periods you know to be fighting the fires that just seem to be ripping the country apart do you yeah. do you feel like enough is being done to support rural communities that's a really interesting question because in some ways i do and in some ways i don't yeah if you look at um Bridget McKenzie's office has just announced a $20 million grant to keep uh, agricultural shows going. Um, so, you know, that's a great way of supporting community um, communities in rural areas. But, you know, again, you've got, you've got comments like what uh, Scott Morrison made um, about the fires as well. So uh, in some ways I do think it's, it's uh, been... We are supported. In other ways, I don't. I, I find... So in another part of my life, I run a not-for-profit organisation called Breaking the Silence, which supports individuals within uh, domestic violence situations just wholly and solely based in rural areas. And I get frustrated when I see how many services we get taken away because uh, government funding has been um, been pulled on a, on a service, um, you know. So I think it's... Uh, I think probably more... more they're not we are, we're probably not supported but in other ways we are and again it's really hard uh, talking about a drought policy um or, or a dr- yeah a drought policy that needs to be brought into 
agriculture. We can't do that when we are in the midst of a drought because the emotions run too high. We can't have a really solid, good business um, plan to go forward when droughts are there if we're trying to do it while we're in the middle of it because all we're doing is playing catch-up. Yeah, it must be very hard to hear rationalisations and and glib explanations about economies of scale when on the ground those are those are lives those are people's that's people's trauma that's actually being rationalized yeah that's right that's right there's a story that we're only skirting around in starting from home and I'm going to continue to skirt around it but at, at the heart we have this story about protest beginning with the protesters death at the novel's outset now it's also a story that had to have a villain and so without going too much into the action and giving away too much of the story's climax. Can you talk to me about how you went about creating this dynamic and, and I guess the political and social tensions you had to balance to to have a villain and, and create some sort of resolution? You know, it's so interesting when you get asked questions like that because a lot of the time I don't actually consciously realise that I'm actually doing this. A lot of what I do is subconscious. I tend to live in my subconscious mm. a, a lot. So I don't necessarily realise that I'm actually doing it. Um, but yes, the villain that we have there, well, there's always got to be a villain. Uh, there's always got to be someone that's going to upend the storyline somewhere along the line. So yeah, um, I guess that they, as a as a villain, we we needed somebody that was passionate, and we needed somebody that was um, probably an extremist, which you know, this person is and because otherwise we weren't going to get to what what actually happens at the end of the story, you know, why people are doing this. And I, I think a really good example, and I don't know how much um, you've, you've heard about it in city areas, is that when the live export uh, vision came back from... Uh, that showed all these distressed animals on, on boats, which was just horrific and all farmers were horrified, what didn't actually come out of that for a very long time was what happened was that there was a or my understanding my understanding of what has actually happened is that there was an employee on that boat that sabotaged some uh, equipment on the boat which then stopped airflow going around um, the, the boat which distressed the animals because it got hot so I guess um, we needed something that was quite unorthodox to happen and this character needed to make that happen so we could show what um, what what could happen in these circumstances and that was and yeah we're, we're, we're borrowing very lightly from the storyline that we want people to still be able to discover but that that I also found really interesting the the idea that a situation could be manufactured. So you've actually got some really mm. false information out there. We touched on this a little bit earlier in the conversation about the sources that we rely on, but that it was representing a potentially true situation and and how we make decisions in the theoretical uh, about things that are, are really, I mean, we touched on this, even the idea of the support that rural communities get when you're trying to make decisions in the theoretical that have real world consequences, people's lives, they're suffering their trauma. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that, that's right. So yeah, I guess, I guess one of the things I find when I write too is I might write a storyline that I haven't, uh, that hasn't been reported or I haven't borrowed from information or, or based something loosely around, Facts that I've that I've read, 
But sometimes I find that once I've written a storyline, something similar to what I've written actually happens. And all I can say about that is that, you know, I'm obviously picking up on um, real life. And so I'm, I'm creating stories that have got, you know, a, a genuineness and an authenticness and, and a realness about them. Maybe that's because I can, I understand the industry or, or, or what I'm not sure. But they, I always find it very intriguing. And another example was when I wrote Red Dust, uh, and one of the, the storylines for that had quite a few. Uh, it was, it was stop theft, so there was quite a few sheep that had been stolen, and. Um, the, where the, where I actually set that book uh, wasn't probably about three months after the book had been released. The same thing happened in the same area. So, yeah, I guess I'm just um, I guess I'm lucky in the fact that I I can write about real things. I am speaking with Flo McDonald. Uh, her latest novel is starting from now, and you may have gathered from this conversation that there is so much to consider wherever in Australia you are about what is happening in rural Australia and how we are all actually connected despite the fact that there may feel like this divide. Uh, Flo, look, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat and uh, for really getting into the, the themes and issues of starting from now. Oh, thank you for having me, Andrew. That's it for this great conversation with Flo McDonald. Flo's latest novel is Starting From Now and it's out now through Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SCR's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 SER. You can also subscribe in your podcast app and you will have a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel and I'll be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft.